There's a uh, wilderness recreation area, I think in Wyoming, that published some of the comment cards that they get there. Let me uh, share some of those with you. Wilderness recreation area, all right? One comment. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Too many bugs, spiders, spider webs. Please spray the wilderness area to get rid of these pests. My favorite. A small deer came into my camp and stole a jar of pickles. Can I get reimbursed? Please call. And one more. A McDonald's would be nice. These people do not get the concept of wilderness. They don't understand. They're looking for convenience. They're looking for comfort. And that's not what they're going to get there. I want to point out to you today that there is risk in following Jesus. And those who are wanting only comfort, convenience, safety, status quo, may not be following Jesus at all. And yet a constant type of message that we get in the United States, especially from televangelists and others, is that following Jesus is the life of wealth and happiness and success. There's one that offers teachings for a certain amount of money and shows pictures of, of yachts and happy couples and, and luxurious homes. And, and it says, learn how to walk in wealth as God intended. Well, is that what the life of a disciple looks like? Well, not the way Jesus describes it again and again. In fact, that's quite the opposite of what Jesus describes. We come to Mark 10 this morning as we are studying through this gospel, and it records what Jesus says about uh, a number of subjects, uh, marriage and uh, money and safety and success, and the values that he speaks about are contrary to the values of this world. In fact, I, I would point out, and there's so much to talk about in this passage that we won't delve into deeply, but Jesus gives four characteristics of a disciple, and they involve some risk. There's risk in involved in these four characteristics. Let me share them with you from Mark 10. Number one, uh, disciples value marriage highly. A disciple values marriage highly. As chapter 10 opens, there are crowds of people surrounding Jesus as they do constantly. They're hearing his teaching and then some trouble comes as it often does. Uh, verse 2, and Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now let me point out to you, the text makes it clear, but this is not a sincere question. This is a trap. This is an attempt to get Jesus in trouble. Uh, because Jews mainly agreed that divorce was allowed. Jesus was a Jew. Uh, they, they, but, but for men only. That was the teaching in that culture and their understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, they, what they disagreed on was the grounds for divorce. You see, Moses in uh, Deuteronomy 24.1 uh, declares divorce can occur for something indecent. And so there was disagreement among Jewish teachers about what that indecency might be. Uh, the the uh, Jewish school of Shammai uh, felt that that was moral indecency only. That, that for a case of adultery, porneia of some sort, uh, then there, there could be the, the divorce. But the school of Hillel, uh, they, they believed that, that indecency was anything the husband didn't like. Uh, even a bad meal would be cause for divorce. 
And so since the Jewish leaders did not agree on this very question, uh, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. And whatever he said would be controversial. And so we asked them, to, to, what does Moses say? And they quote uh, this, that Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Um, actually, probably even four or five years ago, I wouldn't have thought that one statement, God made them male and female, would be controversial. Uh, but it is. Uh, and we don't have time to talk about the, the uh, binary reality of gender as God created it. And that does not dismiss or it does not uh, fail to, to sympathize and be concerned about uh, uh, intersex conditions and uh, uh, gender dysphoria, uh, which, which is very concerning. But there's this uh, binary reality uh, created that, that uh, uh, Jesus refers to here. But that's not his main point. His main point is about marriage and that God intended marriage to last a lifetime. And Moses wrote this exception because humans are weak and failure happens. And divorce was allowed in severe cases, as Moses lays out, to help control the collateral damage of sin. And uh, the purpose of Moses' permission was not to uh, authorize divorce, but to alleviate the consequences, especially for women. Uh, It was to limit the problem, not to license it. It's, it was a way out of a dangerous situation. So divorce is an exception, not the rule. And Jesus continues very forcefully, verse 8, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus affirms that marriage is the primary human relationship. And that no mother, no father, no child, no friend must take priority over that relationship. Uh, And and some uh, are far more concerned with pleasing their parents than their spouse, or or more concerned with with their child than their spouse. And and, uh, Jesus affirms that that human relationship that's primary is the marriage relationship. Uh, And he affirms God's part in marriage. It's a covenant made before God. Uh, and it joins them together. The, the Greek word for joined is synuxin, which it, it refers to, or it, it means working together like two oxen joined by a yoke. And let me tell you, let me warn you, men, that is the worst idea for a Valentine's Day card ever. So, honey, you are like the ox I am tied to. We work together so well. No. Good thought, no. So Jesus declares that Neither man nor woman control marriage, but God does, and Jesus is not done yet. Uh, Verse 10, and in the house, there's that specific house again, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, we don't know what the Pharisees thought of Jesus' answer, but the disciples had more questions. Because in Judaism, the, the husband had all the power in the, in the marriage, the relationship, and Jesus puts men and women on equal footing. He gives the woman the right of divorce that Judaism did not give the woman. 
And so when you commit adultery, the sin is against God and against the wife and against your spouse. Uh, And then Jesus relates the very same penalties on the wife as on the man. This elevates the status of women, uh, very much so. And and this strict view of marriage and divorce uh, was a safeguard to women and children. And and the the call is to to value marriage highly. I don't have to emphasize or I don't have to give you examples of how lightly our society values marriage, how little it regards it, how few people are willing to commit to marriage, although they commit in a, in a re, to a relationship, uh, or, or, or casually discard one spouse for another. But disciples live differently. Disciples are to live differently. Uh, Jesus calls us to do that. Uh, a disciple hangs in there with a difficult marriage. A disciple does not look for the easy way out. Uh, She doesn't view marriage as expendable. Disciples don't fall away when the going gets tough. They're willing to pay the price, if at all possible. Now surely there are horror stories of abusive relationships, and that's why the law allowed an emergency escape. But Jesus discourages divorce, and he upholds the significance of marriage in God's eyes. And as a disciple following him, that should be your perspective and my perspective as well, regardless of what the world thinks. The second characteristic uh, is that disciples come to God helplessly. They come to God helplessly. Now, in Jesus' day, it was customary for people to bring their children, especially their infants, to a great man for blessing. And so with the crowds of people, there were those bringing their infants and their toddlers, carrying them in their arms. And, and, and as we look here at verse 13, if I, that, that's, people are swarming Jesus doing that very thing. They're looking for blessing from Jesus. And the disciples rebuke these parents. And it's a very strong word. They say, go away. Get out of here. You're bothering us. Leave us alone. Now, honestly, they're probably trying to protect Jesus' privacy and keep the distractions and noise at a distance. Uh, But notice the reaction Jesus has, verse 14. When he saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus was upset by his disciples' reaction. He was aroused to anger. How could you treat children this way? They're important. They deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. But let me underline for you here, Jesus' point is far greater than the significance of children. That's not his main point. He says the only way to get into heaven is to receive him like a child. These are babies. These are uh, infants. These are toddlers. We we see that because uh, very shortly, Jesus, they're small enough for Jesus to gather them in his arms and bless them. Uh, These are little ones who are dependent, who are vulnerable. And and that's what little children are. Even you might have seen that news story in the last week or two of the uh, little three-year-old boy in, uh, I think it was North Carolina, lost in the woods for two days in freezing temperatures and found safely, and miraculously found after two days in freezing temperatures. Now he's saying that a bear protected him during that time, and uh, officials say, well, there's no way to know whether that's true or not. How weird would that be? But so vulnerable. That's a story because here's a vulnerable child in freezing temperatures, and he survives. And that helplessness, that vulnerability is Jesus' point here. Because babies, toddlers, are not powerful. They might have you wrapped around their finger, but they're not as powerful 
is that. Uh, they, they're not connected, they're not educated, they're not wealthy, and that is the model of how to approach God. When you realize and admit that you have nothing with which to buy God's favor, that you have no way to earn His forgiveness, that you have no ability to work your way or earn your way into His kingdom, that you have no goodness to deserve His grace, only then do you get into the kingdom of God. Only then. When you understand that and receive Christ. No one receives salvation from God unless you admit your sinfulness and accept His free gift of Jesus. So a true disciple is not self-sufficient, uh, but comes to God in helpless dependence. And, and really, that, that's the issue I think that many uh, Americans have with Christianity. Because they see far too many people who name the name of Jesus who act so self-righteously and so better than everybody else uh, that, that it just doesn't fly. Uh, those people who use Jesus' name, church people who sound so smug and so judgmental. But a real disciple does not act that way. A real disciple knows that she is no better than anyone else and did not deserve God's grace and goodness. Uh, a real disciple knows he is lost and broken, and apart from Jesus, he can do nothing. A real disciple helplessly depends on God to rescue him and make him into a new creation. Third characteristic, disciples hold stuff loosely they hold stuff loosely uh, I, I i'm so blessed that i grew up in a home where i had a mom and dad who loved jesus that was their that, that was their primary uh responsibility loving jesus and that rubbed off on us uh, and we saw things in them as they lived authentically before us that that were tremendous lessons for our lives one very simple thing was to see my mom and dad even as a as a little kid recognize that they set aside uh, the first part of the first day of every week a portion of their income to give to god and to his work and that made an impression on me knowing that we were not wealthy and then as i got a little bit older and was able to like go to to, to sunday school they would give me a few coins that I could put in the offering plate because I was too young to earn money at that point. And I put that, and then somewhere along the way, I got this idea, this grand scheme that if I, if I kept some of those coins back, I would have money for myself. And, and weeks would go by, and then I thought, you know, I keep it all this week. And I was gathering a little pile of things. And then my parents found out, and I, I don't remember what happened there i just remember words like you're robbing god something like that i don't recall but but it made an impression and then, and then as i grew older and began to earn my own uh, money or to get an allowance and learn from that to give to god out of what he has blessed me and and that is a, a lesson that has gone through my life and and, and I, i'm not sure that it gets any easier or different, it, because I need to struggle with my flesh all the time. God, how much? What do you want from me? What does that look like in my life? And so that's why it, it's a practice for me. I, there are many easier ways and other ways to give all or write and find. But I prefer, the uh, 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 first thing Sunday morning is to write out the, 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 the check each week, because that's my reminder. That's my reminder that God is first, and that he gets the, 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 what I, I, whatever I do give to him he deserves that and, and and so that's a lesson that i continue to learn still learning god what what i need to hold loosely all those things because they're from you they're from you now how i view money and possessions has enormous connection to my life as a disciple as it does yours 
And we see that here in verse 17, a man rushes up to Jesus, drops to his knees and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And his question is basically, how can I earn eternal life? How can I buy into this kingdom? And now Jesus just finished saying, he just finished saying that anyone who wants to enter God's kingdom must come helplessly like a little child. But this guy wasn't there to hear that. And besides that, that's not his thing. That's not how he rolls. He's a successful guy. He's used to power and control. And so he he says, you know, how do I make this disciple thing happen? And uh, uh, Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Do not murder. uh, Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not defraud. But honor your mother and your father. And this guy says, yes, I've kept these, every single one of them, ever since I was a tiny kid. uh, I've done this completely. I've complied perfectly. And that's actually impossible. There's a red flag right there. But notice the response, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now Jesus is not sarcastic, he's not mean, he's not demanding, because this guy had the wrong motives, or he was nitwit, or he was pushy, or whatever. Jesus loved him. Many of you need to hear that today. That, that very simple truth. That whatever is going on in your life that's unhealthy, that's broken, that's failed, that's hidden, that's ugly, Jesus loves you. Even if you don't realize that yet. Uh, but the reality, it, it, it doesn't change the fact that he loves you. But you must receive that love. You must respond to it. And this man had a stumbling block to accepting God's love. His attachment to possessions was so strong, it kept him from true discipleship. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So he's shocked, he's appalled by this very unexpected answer that Jesus gives him. And he just leaves. And Jesus did not run after him saying, hey, hey, wait a minute, how about 10%? No. No. Make no mistake, giving away his wealth would not make this guy a disciple. But his attachment to wealth kept him from becoming a disciple. As religious, as sincere, as morally upright as this man was, this rich young guy still had an idol. And Jesus addresses that idol. Verse 23, he looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why are they amazed? Because conventional wisdom was that if you're rich, it's because God blessed you. If you're rich, then obviously you have God's favor. That's conventional wisdom there. And so in that culture, money was the sign God loved you. And the rich get all the breaks anyway, so surely that's how God works as well. But no, Jesus says money can actually be the roadblock to God, a great roadblock to God. In verse 25, he gives that famous illustration that virtually anybody knows. He says it's easier to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. So then the disciples are shocked even more, and they said, well, then nobody's got a chance. Nobody has a shot at this. And notice, verse 27, and Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You cannot be saved by human effort no matter how hard you try. You cannot squeeze into the kingdom. And the truth is salvation is impossible for anyone apart from Christ. He makes all things possible. 
Salvation is not a human thing, no matter what. Can I do enough good to earn God's favor? No. Can I be successful? No. Can I be good? No. You cannot. It's all of God. Salvation is God's gift to those who cry out to Him and depend on Christ alone to bridge the gap. So he makes this point, Jesus does, and this gives Peter an idea. And uh, Peter says, hey, uh, we've already given up everything to follow you, so what do we get out of this? Now, we're already on that, on that part. So what happens? Now, Jesus doesn't say, at least not in any translation I found, Peter, you're a self-centered blockhead. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus says there is a reward for disciples. There is a reward who have given up things. Because whatever you have risked for me and for my gospel is not a loss. Uh, will never be a total loss. Whatever you have to give up or whoever has to give up on you because of me and the gospel, he says is going to be returned a hundred times over. Now and in eternity. So, so Jesus promises that, that he will make things right. Disciples will have the reward of family closer than blood and a future richer than anything on this earth. And the, the point that I want to leave with you is that following Jesus involves releasing my grip on material things. It's my very tenacity of holding on to things that can keep me from being the disciple Jesus wants me to be. Your view of money will not make you a Christian, but your view of money could keep you from becoming one. Disciples have a different approach to money and possessions than the rest of the world. Disciples hold stuff loosely, and they aim to maximize their resources for God's glory. Now, I, want to affirm, I have no idea what anyone gives to the Lord except me and my family. That's all I know. I don't know anything else. But most of us probably could give far more than we do to the greatest cause in the world. Jesus said God honors that risk. How can I test myself? Well, one way, here's, here's one thing I do, is to give generously, and if it pains me to let it go, if, it, if I live in regret over letting that go, then I know money has too big a grip on my heart. Jesus says, whatever you risk for him in the gospel is not lost. He's worthy of the risk. Holding stuff loosely doesn't save you, but for those who have been saved, release your grip. Fourth, disciples serve sacrificially. They serve sacrificially. Jesus is upfront again and again about the cost of following him. Uh, some might prosper financially, uh, others won't. Some will see success, some won't. Some will experience health, others won't. There is risk. And what I want you to see is Jesus is headed straight toward that risk right now. And he's upfront about it. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. So picture this. Jesus is urgently hurrying toward Jerusalem. Uh, and, and Jerusalem, that's where the religious leaders have put out an order for his arrest. And the disciples know this. This is dangerous. And Jesus is ahead. Proago is the Greek word. He's far out in front of them. I, I love that. And, and the disciples are puzzled and they're frightened because Jesus is walking straight toward the danger. You see, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to humility... Jesus doesn't just talk about it. He goes first. And the heroic Son of God is on a rescue mission of danger. Verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. 
So this is now the third time that Jesus has very plainly and clearly told his followers about his execution and resurrection. And notice he says, we are going. Did you catch that? We're going. And this is what's going to be there when we get there. Uh, follow Jesus and you're always headed toward the cross. Follow Jesus, that, that, that's always... Let, let me affirm, personal safety is not the goal of a disciple. That's what we pray about a lot. It's not wrong to pray about but that's not the goal of a disciple. A disciple goes where Jesus goes. Following Jesus brings the possibility of suffering into your life. And you may not get that promotion because you put Jesus first. You may lose some financial security because you're giving to the gospel. You might be shunned by your family because your greatest love is Jesus. You might be dismissed or ignored by the world because you believe the good news. Your circle of friends might shut you out because of your faith. Your moral and ethical standards may cause people around you to laugh. Expect persecution and sacrifice because that's the risk of being with Jesus. And then notice what happens next. Oh my. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So James and John want top positions in the new administration. Not... Forget the stuff Jesus said about suffering and death. They think, well, glory is going to happen eventually. And so we want top spot. We want in. He's headed for victory. So they came seeking the best possible deal for themselves. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptism with which I'm baptized? Now, understand, the cup and the baptism symbolized everything that Jesus was about to experience ingesting the pain poured out on him, overtaken by a flood of suffering. And he says, what's going to happen to me is more terrible and horrific than you can imagine, James and John. And without understanding all of it, James and John say, count us in! We want in! I wonder how many times God has heard one of my prayers and said, you have no idea what you're asking for. Jesus then says, well, the Father chooses who will have places of honor, but you're going to be immersed in trouble and pain. And as disciples, they ultimately face sacrifice and suffering and death. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So the others are ticked off because they didn't think of this first. They're going to be left out. Uh, uh, And all all twelve are filled with self-interest and ambition. In other words, they're just like us. Like James and John, most of us want to be important or influential or in a position of respect and jesus addressed that desire he said the world he goes on to say the world is led by the powerful by the dominant by those who take over others who subdue others who push their weight around worldly leadership goes to the one who calls in the most favors or has the most money or the most guns or the right connection that's who the world honors Uh, but that's not the way it is in my kingdom verse 43 but it shall not be so among you But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus calls his followers to act in a way that's opposite of the way the rest of society works. Instead of those who grab for power, God wants those who stoop to serve. Greatness belongs to the diakonos, those who serve tables. Came in this morning, I see deacon sweeping the sidewalk, I see an elder sweeping the sidewalk. That's the kind of leadership we have here, servant leaders. That, that's what's great in the kingdom. I, when I was a, uh, a uh, I, in my first church, I'm 24 years old, 
And, uh, and I'm the pastor, and I was 24 years old. And Harold and his wife came to our congregation, and they said that they had just left another church. And I said, well, why? He said, because they never selected me to be the leader. And I'm a successful businessman, and he told me the name of this company. People know me in this town. You can't treat a big giver that way, is what Harold told me. Harold didn't stay long at our church either. But status that's built on money, connections, tenure, previous experience, education, is not how the kingdom of God works. And that's why in the church you find the physician working alongside the fertilizer salesman and the plumber serving with a professor and the millionaire on par with the mechanic and the truck driver and the tax lawyer working with the web developer and the Walmart greeter. In, in Christ, we are one body. And those who serve lead. And this humble service was even true for Jesus. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. His life a ransom. The Greek word, common Greek, litron is the word, and it refers to money paid for the release of a slave. Jesus paid his life for the release of all those who are bound in sin. Jesus took our place, offering his life as payment for all who believe. And to accept that ransom, the ransom of Jesus, is to be set free. The great ones in God's eyes are the ones who lay themselves down for others. In the, the story of the Poseidon adventure, the ocean liner hits a huge storm, in the open sea and the lights go out and smoke pours into the rooms and the ship flips. And because of the air trapped inside, the ocean liner floats upside down. But in the confusion, the passengers can't figure out what's going on. They scramble to get out, mostly by following the steps that go up to the top deck. The problem is the top deck is now 100 feet underwater. And so in trying to get to the top of the ship, they drown. And the only survivors are the few who do what does not make sense. They do the opposite of what everyone else is doing and they climb up into the dark underbelly of the ship until they reach the hull and rescuers hear them banging and cut them free. And let me just affirm for you that in life, it's as if God has turned the ship over and the only way for us to find freedom is to choose what doesn't make sense. To lay down our lives by serving and supporting and sacrificing for others. Jesus said, I should always head in the direction of service. The risk is, I might not get the status I deserve, I feel I deserve. I might not get the appreciation or the recognition. But, but that is the direction of ultimate greatness. Upside down is how the world works. And as a disciple, I need to struggle with Jesus' words every single day. I need to keep heading in the direction of service. And so do you. So as we come to the Lord's table, listen to the words of Philippians 2 that speak of the service of Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we gather around this table today, all of us who name the name of Jesus, and we declare that the one who sacrificed his life for us is the one on whom everything hinges. And that we have hope, we have eternal life only through his sacrifice. And therefore, we rejoice in what he has done for us. And as his followers, we seek every day to live for him, 
to tell the world about the only one who can save, and his name is Jesus. So I invite you to celebrate with me around this table as we take the bread and the cup. In a moment, the deacons will distribute these elements. And uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, no matter how imperfectly, I invite you to take the bread and the cup and hold on to them that we can eat and drink together as one body. And in these moments, we're, we're going to sing, 